Okay, so last week, we talked about the question, how do people come to faith? And we talked about sort of how belief systems are fairly, they can be very complex things. And uh, people don't often come to faith in Christ through a direct line. It, It takes time because we're inviting them into a different set of beliefs. So the main point of our lesson last week was that beliefs are like webs. They're not like marbles. When we talk to somebody about faith issues, we're not inviting them to just get a new belief and add it to their pre-existing beliefs, like a, like a marble, not, and everything's disconnected from each other. Beliefs are like webs, and what we're inviting them into is a new system of beliefs, a new set of lenses, a new way of seeing the world. So when we present the gospel to a non-believer, we're inviting them to adopt an entirely different worldview, not just adopt one new belief to add to their existing beliefs. And this is part of what makes talking to people so complicated. And we talked about how there is a web of beliefs that we have as Christians. And now, when, if we as Christians have a network of beliefs, sometimes we even change our belief systems within our network of beliefs. Like, for example, I've been undergoing a transformation in my understanding of prayer and how to pray and how to engage in what's called intercessory prayer. And this this doesn't mean I changed my entire worldview, but it's definitely been a connected set of beliefs about prayer that I've had to, that I've been undergoing some transformation for. So sometimes we, we change within our web of beliefs. When I underwent the process of when I joined my current employer at Reasons to Believe, I had to undergo some changes in my belief system about how I thought about creation and the natural world. Because I started working with scientists and I realized, wow, these people ask different sorts of questions than I was ever taught to ask in seminary or in church. And I had to undergo some transformation in this area of my belief system. But I was still within the web of beliefs of Christianity. Okay, So sometimes these certain areas need tweaking as we go and as we grow in our faith. How many of you believe exactly the same way as you believe when you first came to faith in Christ? No beliefs have changed. I see no hands. Pretty much one. Pretty much the same. No, some things have changed. How many of you have ever had the thought like, I might actually be wrong about a certain belief that I thought the Bible taught, but maybe it actually doesn't teach that. Any any of you ever thought like, I might be wrong? Yeah, see, but you didn't switch worldviews, right? You just sort of refined one particular area of your worldview. So sometimes that happens. And, and, and very seldom does anybody ever sit down with us when we come to faith and explain the whole thing from soup to nuts, the whole, the whole thing all at once. We, we just get like some little thing and then something happens with the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden we know that we've changed our worldview. I mean, this is how it happens for many people. Other people are more deliberative and they look at evidences and it takes them time. And the Lord works through all of that, okay? So when we are talking to people in our oikos, we talked last week about we are engaging in a process of graceful degradation of other people's worldviews, and other people are engaging in graceful degradation of our worldview. If we talk to somebody who uh, sees the world from a different point of view, maybe they're an an angry ex-Catholic, or maybe they are someone who um, is a Scientologist or there's somebody who is an atheist, they think their position is right, right? And we think our position is right. And we're, when we have conversations, we're both kind of gracefully, hopefully, gracefully, hopefully, tactfully, maybe sometimes pointedly, engaging in trying to undermine the belief systems of the other person. And we do this not through magic bullet arguments of just one magic thing. What's the one argument that's going to bring everyone to faith in Christ? That doesn't work, right? So we have to 
kind of engage in multiple fronts of graceful degradation. And then when, when, the, when the core belief is undermined, usually that's when people deconvert from their system. It's usually the final straw for them in their system is when that core belief. Now, what happens if your core belief is that all Christians act lovingly? You might deconvert very quickly. <laughs> if your core belief is that all pastors in leadership act godly. If that's your core belief, you're going to be gone pretty quick, right? So we have to be careful of what we put at the core of our belief system, right? So some, some people deconvert away from Christianity, I think, because they have the wrong core. And so they think, um, well, this Christianity thing isn't for me. Everyone's a hypocrite. Well, maybe people being hypocrites, maybe people being perfect shouldn't be your core belief. Maybe something else should be at the core. So these, we said last week, beliefs are curious things, and they are very complicated. And we believe things for rational and irrational reasons. So how do we know if we have the correct core belief, or what I called last week, the correct mega-belief? How do we know we have the right system? Because there's a lot of competitors out there, right? There's a lot of complete, competing webs of belief. You can be LDS. You could belong to the Church of Christ or Scientist. You could be part of, you could be an atheist. You could be um, a Scientologist. There's a lot of competing worldviews. So how do you know that you have the right worldview? So this is the question I want us to consider today, is how do we know we have the correct mega-belief, the correct web of beliefs? Now, I could teach for a whole year on this question. In fact, I uh, have developed a course through my employer of basically testing worldview systems. It's a whole course that we offer, and we survey the major religions of the world, and we ask the question, how do you know you have the right belief? So what I'm doing today is extremely superficial. This is the, the caveat of this, all right? Like I said, we could go on a series on this to- one topic for an entire year. But I'm just going to lay out some basic ideas to help you in your Oikos conversation. So we're going to start by watching a video. We all have fears. Fears of the dark. Fears of being alone. Fears of being nothing. And we tend to be afraid of the things we don't know. And one of the greatest unknowns is the great unknown. Death. For many, this mystery can be a source of confusion, anxiety, and fear. From our perspective, death may seem like a terrible, gloomy end. So let's shed some light on life after death. Death is actually part of God's plan for us. You see, before we came to this earth, we lived with God as his spirit children. When we came to earth, we received a physical body, the one you can feel and touch and see in the mirror. Then, when we get old or sick, our time here comes to an end. We die, but our spirit lives on. But that's not the end of the story. Our families, our friends, all those who have passed on before us will be there too. And one of the most glorious parts of God's plan is that our spirit will be reunited with our physical body. No, 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 not like that. A resurrected, perfect body. You might be asking, how is this possible? Because of Jesus Christ. Through his resurrection, he overcame death, making it possible for us to be resurrected too, every single one of us. So we can live with God and the ones we love forever. It's all part of God's bigger plan, a plan for our happiness. And it's a pretty big plan. So if you have some questions, don't be afraid to ask. Okay, so this is on the, uh, I think it's on that mormon.org website. So it's the official entity of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So um, it's a very effective kind of beginning introduction to their belief system about life after death. Now I jotted down here some of the claims that they make. Before you were born, you were, you were spirit children. Then you came to earth, you were born, you got a body. 
uh, then you die, but then you live on and you have a resurrected perfect body and this was made possible by Jesus Christ. These are all claims that they make. So the question is, is we would have different, slightly different claims. Some claims would be similar. Some claims would be very different. But the question is, is how do I know which set of claims is correct? We're both making competing claims. So why don't we believe this? This is a competing set of ideas about the meaning and purpose of life. Well, we often say things like, well, this is how I was raised. I've had my prayers answered. I've had a conversion experience. Remember last week we talked about some things we just know. We know it in our knower that certain things are true, and this is what we tell ourselves. But I can tell you unequivocally that my brother knows it in his knower that LDS theology is true, that this is true. And he has a lot of the same experiences that I do. He has a conversion story. What's so interesting, his conversion story is so much like mine. (laughs) It's kind of freaky. Both of us have a conversion story where the Lord intervened in our life to fill in that space that was left by our father and the woundedness that we both had as a result of not having a father in our life. That's his conversion story to the Mormon church. And it's my conversion story to being a Christian. It's kind of crazy. The first time I heard this, I'm like, this is messing me up. (laughs) (laughs) So, religious experience to any other religion. That's right. So if our core belief, remember we talked a few minutes ago, we have to be careful about what our core belief is. What if our conversion is our core belief? And then we meet someone else that has an equally powerful conversion story as their core belief. Then what do you have? You have two systems of beliefs where you're, you have competing conversion stories. How do you figure out whose is what? Part of the web of beliefs that is more true, more accurate. So this is the crazy thing about living in the pluralistic society that we do, is that everyone has their own belief system. And everyone has reasons why they are that. They may not be able to articulate them very well, but they have a reason for that. Okay, so we're going to play some uh, testimonies here. Uh, Clip number two. About 11 years ago, my husband and I were just not getting along very well and just not sure if we wanted to be married anymore. In my family, there was a a cycle of abusiveness going on and my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father, you know, this tradition was passed down from generation to generation. Like everyone else, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, especially when I was younger. And when I was younger, I was looking back on the things that I had done prior to that, and I was just kind of overcome with sadness. I'd been praying every day and just constantly praying, just Heavenly Father, help me find a way to help my marriage so that we can stay together. When I was 15, the missionaries came to knock on the door of my father's house, and that's when the Book of Mormon was introduced into my life. So I turned to the Book of Mormon for some kind of pick-me-up, I suppose, and in it I read 3 Nephi chapter 30, verse 1 and 2, and uh, in it the Lord gives one last plea for his people to turn to him and find forgiveness. I could still find forgiveness after all the things that I had done. And it was after that that I really understood the role of Jesus Christ as my Savior. I felt very prompted to ask my husband if he would be willing to read the scriptures and to pray with me. We had been doing it with our children for a while, but I just knew we needed to do it as a couple. And so that night we got together and we prayed together and then we read the Book of Mormon together. I'm not saying our marriage is perfect, but we work at it. And if we kind of slack off a little, like, oh, we need to do this again. I just, I got my best friend back and I couldn't ask for anything better. <laughs> I remember 
reading from the Book of Mormon and was really amazed at this particular verse in Mosiah chapter twenty-five, verse twelve, and it said that, and it came to pass that those who were the children of Amulon and his brethren were displeased. With the conduct of their fathers, and they would no longer be called by the names of their fathers. Now, when I read that verse, it really struck me because I knew that I had the agency, I had a choice, and I could choose the kind of person I wanted to be. I chose for myself that I would no longer continue the cycle of domestic violence. So this verse really helped me too. Turn my life around. Okay, then just go to the next one. I wasn't sure that I would ever find the answers, but I knew that I had to look because if I didn't try, I'd never know. And it was an empty feeling. There was something missing. But as soon as I had the answers, as soon as I, I found the church, everything made sense. As I say, it felt like, like going home. It felt, it felt good. It felt really good. If you want to know, all you have to do is ask. Basically,、um, just pray. It's the only way you get the answer is is to pray. Put your trust in Heavenly Father that He will give you an answer, and you'll feel it's right. You'll feel inside. You'll just know that that what He's telling you is right.、Um, it's a good feeling. It is a good feeling. Now, can you guys relate to any of these clips? Sure. They, is this not unlike how many of us describe our own faith journey and why we came to faith? It is not altogether indifferent. I had something difficult in my life—a difficult marriage, domestic violence, teenage rebellion—and we could substitute instead of the Book of Mormon. I read the Bible, and it helped me. I found some a verse that helped me. I read. We started reading the Bible in our difficult marriage,、um, gave me wisdom, and it changed my life. I mean, can you see the similarities there? See the we the way that we come to know things is not dissimilar to how the rest of the world knows things, and so it's not going to be enough just to tell someone, "Well, I read the Bible, and it helped me become a better person." Because I could go to a twelve-step program and become a better person. I could read the Book of Mormon. Many, many people deconvert from Christianity into Islam because they feel like it helped them become a better person. So that type of argument is going to be difficult for many people when you engage at that level with your oikos of let me tell you how Christianity is true. It helped me in my life. Because there are competing systems out there, and they many of them do the same thing. In the second clip, we I, I made note of some of the terminology that Gal used. She found the church; everything made sense. Just pray and trust. You'll feel it's right. You'll you'll just know. That's what we've been talking about. It's a good feeling. These are not dissimilar ideas to how we describe our own faith. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is I want to make you aware that for many people in, in your oikos, they have very good reasons why they are that, why they are an atheist, why they are secular, secular humanist, why they are a Catholic, why they are、um, a Jew, why they are whatever they are. They have very good reasons in their minds why they are, and it has brought them some level of comfort, and they know it. And so, in this whole process of of talking to them and the graceful degradation that we have to do, we have to understand that these will be obstacles for us. So we won't be surprised 
when they, they begin to tell us, well, let, some version of, let me tell you why I'm this. Because that's what you're wanting to do, right? You're wanting to tell them, let me tell you why I'm a Christian. and Why I think this is the best belief system. So which worldview is best? If you have from way last fall, and I should have brought extra copies. I'll bring some next week. Last fall, I gave you a big map of worldviews. It's all the different worldview beliefs. There's many, many options. There's many competitors to our worldview. So how do we know which ones? We all have biases. This is the great insight of postmodernism. We all have biases. We all have pre-understandings. We all have judgments about what things are true, what things are good. Okay? And I do think that it's probably true that it's impossible to be completely unbiased. That was the great project of modernism, is how do we have an unbiased opinion? I think that some, we can work toward being unbiased, but I think in some sense we all, all have some level of biases. I like to say it this way, we can suggest some ways to test our biases and to see which biases are the best biases to be biased by. <laughs> this is the great endeavor of what I think we should do on some level. And this approach is very useful for people who are more into uh, needing evidence and needing to have reasonable discussion about, about things. So you don't want to sell the idea that uh, there is no such thing as bias. There's biases. Even scientists have biases. I work with some. They will tell you unequivocally scientists have biases. But they have checks and balances to try to compensate for their biases and to examine their biases. And that's what I think we should do also as Christians. So I'm going to introduce a concept that my colleague Ken Samples has been working on for a number of years. And if you've been reading through his book, um, without a doubt, I did actually get a few more copies this week. So if you didn't get one in the past, you can get one today. But he has another book called World of Difference, where he talks about this whole project of testing worldviews. And so what I'm going to be presenting here is just one little snippet from that book. But I think it's a very important question to ask. Um, how do we know which worldview is correct? And how do we go about testing worldviews? Because if you just look at that worldview chart, how do I know which one is true? How do I determine that? So I'm going to give three tests today. Ken gives more tests in his book, but I'm just giving three. The first test is explanatory power. Does the worldview adequately explain, the, and circle this keyword, the widest array of data? Many worldviews can account for certain data points, but not other data points. A big example of this is can it account for both the natural and the supernatural? So, for example, let's say I'm a naturalist, I don't believe in God. I am some form of a secular humanist. I want to make the world a better place. I think that humans are moral, have the capacity for moral goodness. I want to help save the environment. I think that um, right living is a good idea. But I don't believe in God. I don't think God is necessary. Because there's no evidence for God that I can see. And really, I'm not that much different than you, dear Christian. I just believe in one less God than you do. And so, as a secular humanist, this, this is my worldview. Well, the problem with any form of naturalism, I think, is that it cannot account for the supernatural. When you start thinking about certain experiences we have in our culture with what some people call the paranormal, that there are paranormal experiences that some people have with Ouija boards, with UFO encounters, these are situations that cannot be explained purely by natural explanations. 
So I would say the naturalist cannot explain certain data points. Now, if you read in Skeptic Magazine, they'll try to tell you that all paranormal experiences have a natural explanation. The problem is that some of those natural explanations don't seem very natural. (laughs) (laughs) So whatever worldview we have, it has to have explanatory power. It has to be able to explain as much data as possible. And I think that it needs to be able to explain the supernatural as we observe it. Very important point of how to test a worldview. Second is a correspondence test. Does this worldview correspond to well established empirical facts? I think the correspondence test is a problem if you are in an Eastern religion. If you are in an Eastern religion such as Hinduism or Buddhism, you are taught that the world is an illusion. The physical world doesn't really exist. It's all an illusion, and it can be controlled, and it can be manipulated. Well, as the famous apologist Ravi Zacharias likes to say, even a Hindu looks both ways before they cross the street. (laughs) There are some data points that are missing here in this worldview. It doesn't have explanatory power over everything. There are some problems The worldview must correspond to well-established empirical facts. And I think that this is, in particular, a problem for Eastern religions. Does it correspond to a person's experiences of the world? All right, we're going to focus our time, the remaining time today in class, on the verification test, because I think this was the easiest one for beginners to understand. The verification test is... Can the central truth claims of the worldview be verified or falsified? Now, many Christians get upset with my, the, my employer for suggesting or making the observation that Christianity actually has some ways it could be falsified. Any of you have ever been in junior high science class? You learned the scientific method, right? You learned how to have a hypothesis, You learned how to test your hypothesis. And if your hypothesis was correct, you should get certain results. If it was not correct, that was called falsification. Okay? There are tests that we could perform on the Bible to potentially and theoretically falsify it. For example, let's say the Bible taught that the first humans came from North America. That would be a problem because everything in science is telling us that the first humans originated somewhere around East Africa to Mesopotamia, somewhere in that region. Well, the Bible, what does the Bible tell us about where the first humans were formed? It says it was near the Tigris and Euphrates River, near the land of Cush, which is the old term for the, the country of Egypt. What does that sound like? Eastern Africa and Mesopotamia. So there's correspondence there for early humans coming from the right location. But if the Bible clearly taught humans came from North America first, that is a potential way to falsify scripture. Does that make sense? When it talks about the in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that tells me the universe has a beginning. But if scientists were to have some well-established facts that the universe is, in fact, eternal, that would seem to falsify the Bible's declarations that the universe has a beginning. Is this making any sense to you? So you can see how there are certain claims in Scripture that can be falsified, potentially. What's interesting in the ministry that I work for is that we explore these connections and looking at where science and scripture actually begin to intersect and begin to, science is actually confirming what scripture says. But the verification test is very useful for testing worldviews because it provides a way for us to begin to talk about it in terms that our culture understands. Okay, now this is probably not going to be an effective way to talk to people um, if they're from a more eastern point of view. But if they're from a more Western point of view, this can be 
this can be helpful, is asking them the question, you know, I understand, you know, that you have this belief system, I have this belief system. How could we tell that one of us is correct? How could we figure that out? We both can't be right because your holy book says I'm apostate. So we both can't be right. One of us could be wrong or we could both be wrong. So I often will ask someone that has a competing system. They have a conversion story. They have deeply held core beliefs. I'll say, great, I'll grant you all that. How could we tell that your worldview is the correct one and mine is the incorrect one? How could we go about testing that? That's a very interesting question. Because then we don't have to get into a debate about our competing conversion stories. Whose is more authentic? You know, let's ask. Let's take a poll from the audience. Um, So we want to think about how to use this tool in our discussions of how could we know which one of us is correct. And I'm going to explain or I'm going to give some examples of the verification test right now. Okay. The Bible makes many historically based claims. And its theology is wrapped up in these claims. I've gone on and on about that in this class with the classic example of the resurrection. So I'm not going to rehearse that here about 1 Corinthians 15. But we get our view of the afterlife largely from 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection never happened, which is a historical event, we don't have a ground for believing that our own resurrection will happen someday. Okay. So we're going to go to clip number one. Most of the biblical account takes place in a small strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. To the south lies the Red Sea in Egypt. This land, originally known as Canaan, is where God established his chosen people, the Israelites. One of the earliest and most famous of the Israelite kings was David who established the kingdom of Israel. David's son Solomon succeeded him as king and built a temple for the Lord on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. After Solomon died, the kingdom was divided in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. The Bible says the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom remained intact until 586 B.C., at which time it was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and its people were exiled after the Babylonians burned Jerusalem. And after 70 years of exile, a remnant of the people from Judah, known as Jews, were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city walls. The New Testament opens with the lands of Israel and Judah, now called Palestine, under Roman rule. Herod was king and had added to the temple. The New Testament records the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the coming of the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. So one of our first questions was, does the geography match the biblical account? using the same names used in the Bible 3,500 years ago till today, like the Dead Sea, like the Moabian Mountains, the Ammonite Mountains, and uh, we preserve them till today. These places were what the Bible says that they were. The geography matches. The valleys are next to the cities, which are connected to the hills, and all of this can be traced in very detailed geographic accounts in scripture. The Jews still exist today, both in the countries to which they were exiled and in the land of Israel. All of the civilizations surrounding Palestine have also been well established through archaeology and history. Israel is a bridge of three continents. So we had the Egyptian coming here, 
the Assyrian coming here, the Babylonian coming here, the Hellenist Empire, the Roman. It's very evident when you read the Bible that uh, they're really talking about historical places. How do you know that the Roman Empire existed? The Romans left marks everywhere they went. They left large roads, they left coins, uh, and they left written records. The Bible also contains accounts of people groups that no longer exist today, such as the Canaanites and the Philistines. But are these people groups missing from the archaeological record? Uh, we know a lot about the Canaanite civilization through Egyptian sources as well as through uh, many, many archaeological sites excavated in this country where we have the uh, Canaanite civilization uh, uh, reflected. Archaeologically, have the Philistines been shown to have existed? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, the Philistines have their own distinct material culture which we can tell apart from other cultures that lived here. We do not have such a uh, situation in which uh, a, uh, a certain power would be destroyed without leaving any evidence. They leave their tombs, they leave the remnants of their houses, they leave their temples, they leave the foundations, and they leave the destruction. Permanent settlements, all of them, are well known and agreed upon by scholars in Israel today. Places like Hatzor and Megiddo and Jerusalem and Shiloh and Arad and Beersheba and Jericho, many of these are still inhabited until today. And they may be ruins. Jesus condemned these sites of Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, but there's no doubt scholars know that these were real places that existed in his time and the evidence for them is is certain. All these places that are still called by the same name, how is that possible? Because for thousands of years there's been a continuous settlement. The local peoples have passed on the names from generation to generation. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Elat, those are biblical names. We keep them for more than 3,000 years. city like Tiberias, there is plenty of evidence, like architecture, floors, small finds, objects, coins, you name it, everything. Could a major city be conquered and not leave any, any of that evidence? No way. By no means. Okay, so that's just a little overview of some of the claims made by scripture. Do you see how falsification begin, can begin to work? Because there's rivers named, there's mountains, there's cities, there's people. David is one that was mentioned in the clip. There's people groups, Judah, Israel, the Babylonians, the, Ro the Romans, the Egyptians. Uh, Herod is another person. And it records the history of the Jewish people. And all of this is part of the cumulative case for the Bible. Now, I'm just looking at archaeology. Uh, we could look at it from a standpoint of science. But there is this idea that if the Bible contains truth, it ought to be something that corresponds to what we know in the real world, okay? Now we're going to look at an overview of the Book of Mormon and some of its claims. And I think this will make the point that I'm trying to make uh, more clear for you. According to the Book of Mormon, a group of people known as the Jaredites migrated to the New World in the distant past, following the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. Centuries later, the Jaredites destroyed themselves in a massive civil war. It is said that two million people died in a single battle on a hill, which the Book of Mormon later identifies as the Hill Cumorah. 
As the Jaredites died out, a Jewish family from Jerusalem migrated to the Americas around 600 B.C. The father of this family was named Lehi. From his righteous son Nephi grew a nation of white-skinned people called Nephites, while his rebellious sons Laman and Lemuel fathered the Lamanite nation, who were cursed with a dark skin for their rebelliousness. The two nations were in nearly constant conflict with one another. The culminating event of the Book of Mormon took place around A.D. 34, when Jesus Christ visited the Nephites and Lamanites living in the Americas following his death and resurrection. This event brought centuries of peace between the Nephites and the Lamanites. However, the peace did not last and the Hill Cumorah once again became the setting for a massive slaughter. The Lamanites completely destroyed the Nephites down to one man named Moroni. Fourteen hundred years later, Moroni appeared as an angel to the young Joseph Smith Jr telling him that there was a book written upon gold plates and that it was an account of the former inhabitants of this continent. After Smith received the plates on the Hill Cumorah, he claimed to translate the ancient record into English. The Book of Mormon was published in Palmyra, New York in the year 1830, and from that time on, Joseph Smith and every LDS prophet and apostle after him has proclaimed it to be a true and accurate history of ancient America. This painting is a familiar piece of artwork to most Mormons and represents the Mormon teaching that while the Bible is a historical account of the Old World, the Book of Mormon is a historical account of the Americas. We travel to upstate New York because uh, the Hill Cumorah is there, which is central to Mormonism. Uh, it's the traditional site where the great battles described in the Book of Mormon were fought. Uh, it, it's owned by the Mormon Church. They have a statue of Moroni and a visitor center, and they put on a pageant uh, during the summertime that retells the, uh, the Book of Mormon story. In fact, it's the only place that the LDS Church declares to be an official uh, ancient historical site. Because a narrow neck of land is described in the Book of Mormon account, it's generally assumed that the setting for the Book of Mormon is Mesoamerica. In fact, earlier versions of the Book of Mormon contained pictures of Mayan ruins implying that there was a connection between these ruins and the Book of Mormon civilizations. And in the same way, artwork that's commonly used to depict these Book of Mormon scenes frequently portrays Mayan architecture and Mayan themes. So we traveled to Guatemala and to Honduras and southern Mexico with LDS anthropologist Dr. Tom Murphy to address the question of whether or not the Book of Mormon account matches the geography and the archaeology of the New World. The remains of the ancient Greek and Roman empires, which are written about in the Bible, are clearly visible throughout the Old World. Likewise, the Book of Mormon also records the existence of empires in the New World we get the Jaredite civilization in the Book of Ether a promise that they will become the greatest nation in the world. Uh, this greatest nation on earth, we find no traces of it. The dates found in the footnotes of the Book of Mormon indicate that the Jaredite Empire was replaced by the Nephite Empire shortly after 600 BC. In the Book of Mormon, you've got this large civilization of Nephites who were industrious people who built machines, lived in large cities. I, I don't know of any evidence that the Nephites ever existed in the Americas. The civilizations we find uh, throughout Central America tended to peak, find their great climax, uh, between 600 and, and 900 A.D., well after the events described in the Book of Mormon. The Lamanites are said to have annihilated the Nephite Empire around 400 A.D. So of the three people groups mentioned in the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites are the only ones that survived, becoming, according to the Book of Mormon, the principal ancestors of Native Americans. Now here at the Hill Cumorah, we have this plaque that specifically lists us as Lamanites. It's written to Lamanites who are a remnant of the House of Israel that's listing us as being specifically written to in the Book of Mormon. No se ha encontrado ninguna evidencia de una cultura procedente del territorio de Israel llamada Lamanitas o Nifitas. No hay ninguna evidencia. This begs the question, 
could the three enormous empires that are said to have flourished in the Americas for centuries leave no archaeological trace of themselves? So would it be possible, say, in the Americas um, for an empire to exist there and leave no archaeology? No, it's impossible. No, it's impossible. So what are some of the claims that are made by the Book of Mormon? Do you start to see how this principle of verification or falsifiability begins to work? Because there's many claims. For example, one claim that could be tested today is if the American Indians are originally the descendants of Jewish people, you could test that through DNA. So there should be a way of falsifying or verifying that claim in a fairly easy and straightforward way. And this is a very real concern. In fact, there is a whole wing of LDS apologetics now devoted to trying to find the ruins the archaeological evidence for these empires. But this is not about shaming LDS people. This is a way of trying to offer an objective way of saying, how could I know if your holy book is true? I say to my brother all the time, I'm open. I am open to the idea that God has a new revelation for his people. But I have to know... How do I know that this is a real revelation from God? What is the verification for that? And it has to be something that begins to approach that it's present in the real world through the empirical test, the correspondence test, or the verification test. And in my opinion, this is why I am not a Mormon. This is why I have not converted. Because I don't see any level of verification of these claims in the archaeological record. Can you kind of begin to understand how these tests can be helpful, getting you out of the the story of, let me tell you my testimony. Mr. Hindu, I am open to your worldview, your network of beliefs being true. Just explain to me, how do I know it's true? What are the tests that I could perform to know that your worldview is better or a more accurate picture of the world than mine? I think there's validity to, to religious experiences. I actually think religious experiences are real. I just don't think they ought to be part of our core belief system. They shouldn't form the foundation or our mega belief. We need to have something that is a little bit more objective. Um, than, than our conversion experience. And that's why I said earlier, we have to be very careful of what we put as that core belief. And if we have our conversion story there, which I see many Christians, that's their core mega belief of their web of beliefs is their conversion. If that's your core reason why you're a Christian, it's so easy for someone else with a competing system to come along and say, well, I have a very different story but it led me to this alternative system. So we just have to be very careful about that. I don't want to undermine the idea that religious experiences aren't true. I think they absolutely are. I think they can be real, but they can also, you have to be careful and test them out, as it says in 1 John 4, as testing the spirits behind those religious experiences to know what they really are. When we're thinking about our own belief system and the verification test, We want to look at things that comport with the best empirical evidence. And this is a very important thing to do that I think many Christians are somewhat sloppy about. But we want to put forth the best evidence. The existential test is another test that Ken Samples proposes in his book. And it's, does this worldview adequately address the internal needs of humanity? Does it provide hope? Does it provide purpose? Does it provide destiny? That's a very important quality of a good worldview. Does it address humanity's need for purpose and meaning in life? I think this is the big problem with Christianity. If I were to hone in on one thing that I think is challenging to our system of beliefs, it's not the verification test. I think it's the existential test. 
This is what many unbelievers believers will struggle with when they come to us in our Oikos conversations. Because the idea of an all-good, all-loving God, how is that compatible with the existence of pain, evil, and suffering? And we can go on for many weeks on a philosophical discussion on the problem of pain. But when you're talking to somebody and they're asking you the very pointed question of why is life so hard? Even though I believe in God, he doesn't seem to be answering my prayers. This is a formidable challenge to the existential test in people's personal lives. And what causes some people to ultimately deconvert away from Christianity? Because if their pain is not addressed over a long period of time, they lose hope. And they start to doubt whether God is really there. And even if he's there, is he there for them? This is the power of, of understanding beliefs. Anyways, I hope that this has been a helpful couple of weeks to you to really help understand some of the obstacles that are involved in our Oikos conversations. And it's not just a direct line from A to B. But we've got to learn how to ask some good questions and figure out where people are coming from and what their particular obstacle is and also being circumspect about the or the challenges to our own worldview and uh, understand that everybody has their core beliefs and they've arrived at them somehow in a way that made sense to them at the time so all right let's pray father we thank you for today and lord i just ask that you would um, really impress these concepts on our hearts as we Try to talk to people that this wouldn't be a source of discouragement, but rather information and empowerment to know that when we run into obstacles, we don't have to panic. This is normal. And that we can really rely on you for guidance as we interact with people and speaking into their lives in a supernatural way. And help us to also be circumspect about our own religious beliefs, our own system, our own web of beliefs, because we know that uh, just because we know something to be true, um, we don't want to come off as arrogant or cocky toward other people. Rather, we want to invite them into a conversation with us and build those bridges so that we can continue to have an influence in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.